May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. You may be seated. Years and years ago, I heard a pastor say one time that there are three things a pastor needs to be ready to do, ready to move, ready to die, and ready to preach. Well, ready or not, here I go. I think this happened to Dr. Schuler when he was here once, that uh, Saturday night call came, I need you to preach in the morning. Robert has tested negative three times, but he's all the signs and symptoms that he has the old Omicron. If you and I could allow ourselves to think of the Bible as a whole, the First Testament, as John Golden Gay is wont to call it, and the New Testament forming a coherent story. We think of that as the story of God. That story, of course, begins in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God, the creator, the source of all that is, the ground of all being. And in the last chapter of the New Testament, we read these words, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. The Bible, then, if we can think of it this way, is the story. It's the story of God. But that story, by the Creator's design and desire, also includes the people of God. As the book of Genesis unfolds, we find that God begins to call a people. But in reality, He first, of course, calls one man, Abraham. And he makes promises to that man, which are really for not so much himself as for his descendants after him. These promises and directives demonstrate for us God's purpose, God's desire for his people, and reality is for the whole human race. God's plan from the beginning was for the people of God or as they later come to be called in Scripture, Israel, collectively, they're called to be instruments of blessing to the nations of the world. Not unlike any other people group, even those whose function in the name of Jesus, the children of Israel began to see themselves as the chosen, and as they began to see themselves more and more that way, they began to sense that what God was promising and doing was only for their benefit. And they departed from God's plan. And the further they departed from that plan, the further they departed from God. And yet God, though Israel may have failed, kept his plan. His purposes would still be accomplished. And passages such as was read this morning in Isaiah chapter 42, give a glimpse into the heart of God as he seeks to fulfill those promises. You read the opening 
phrase of that passage, and it speaks about a servant. Now, there are four passages in the book of Isaiah that are in relative close proximity to one another, as far as the text goes, that are referenced as the servant songs by scholars. And as one reads those servant songs, it can become a bit confusing at times because in one place, it appears that the servant is an individual, and in another place, it appears as if the servant is Israel, God's collective people. And what we discover, of course, is that God's people failed to live into their true calling. Not unlike many of us as God's children often find ourselves, if we're honest, living in a season that is not true to our calling. And yet God remains faithful. Not unlike the man and the woman in the garden who failed in their calling and their commissioning, so Israel failed in theirs. But God anticipated all of this, of course. And what they cannot do and fulfill in and of themselves, he provides that which needs to be accomplished. And so we read the word of Isaiah when he says, Behold my servant. Now in Isaiah chapter 49, we will read of this servant again. And in verse 6, if you want to go home and look this up, you'll discover that the servant acts on behalf of Israel. What he accomplishes benefits them. But also in that same passage, if you keep reading, what the servant also accomplishes is to bring light to the Gentiles. In Isaiah chapter 53, we also read of this servant in which we identify him and understand him to be the suffering servant. And as Christians, we cannot help but see as we read Isaiah 53, and yea, even the passage before us this morning, that when we read about this servant, we identify him as none other than Jesus, the Messiah. For Jesus comes to fulfill what Israel could not accomplish. He is the servant. Now notice what God says about this servant. He says of him, in whom my soul delights takes pleasure, approves. Now today, whether you're aware of it or not, in the Christian West for Anglicans and Roman Catholics and Lutherans and others who are liturgical people, today is Epiphany. Oh, excuse me, today is the first Sunday of Epiphany. Last week on January 6th was the Epiphany. And in the Christian West, on January 6th, the observant of Epiphany, we observe the arrival of the Magi, those mysterious figures who show up from the East inquiring about a baby whose star has been revealed to them. And the early church immediately identified these mysterious characters that came from the East as representative, as figurative of Gentiles, and the gospel coming to them as well. Now today, on this first Sunday of Epiphany, we mark the baptism of Jesus. And in this service, we will also have baptisms later on. 
It's recorded in the gospel text that Tony read a moment ago. It's recorded in John's gospel with even a little more detail. But We find Jesus submitting himself to the baptism of John. He gets in line with the people. We have to understand that his act of baptism validates all our baptisms. His act of baptism will validate the baptism that we witness this morning. And he gets in line with the people because he has come to the people. He has come, as we will confess, the incarnate word of God. He comes as God from God, as light from light, as true God from true God, as one who is begotten, not made, because he has come to join himself to us, that he might join us to the Father. Remember in the post-resurrection experience in the garden, when he looks at Mary and he says to her, go and tell my disciples that I ascend to my God and their God to my Father and their Father. Jesus brings us in to the dynamic of a relationship with the Father that he himself has known for eternity. And when Jesus comes up out of the waters of baptism, we hear the voice of the Father saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. It echoes the words of the prophet Isaiah. My soul delights in him. Not only does his soul delight in him, but Isaiah also tells us that he will put his spirit upon him. And this is exactly what we see happen at the baptism of Jesus. When he comes up out of the waters, you probably know this story, the spirit descends upon him. Why? Because just as Israel could not fulfill her role as being a servant of the Lord without seeking and leaning in continuously to the Lord, so Jesus could not fulfill his role as Messiah without the anointing of the Spirit. Listen to what Jesus says of himself. Truly, truly, I say to you. Now when Jesus says truly, truly, that means you've got to listen closely, okay? He's saying, this is important. Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself. Did you hear what Jesus says? Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself. And truly, truly, I say to you this morning that the church is in the same place. She cannot be what she is called to be apart from living in dependence upon the Father through the work of the Spirit, hearing the heart of the Father, and then responding to do His will. We, too, need the anointing of the Spirit to do the work that the Father has commissioned and sent us to do. Notice how this servant comes. Isaiah says he will not cry out, or raise his voice, nor make his voice heard in the streets. Now, I don't know why I think some of the weird things I think. When I read that text, I can't help but wonder, why do some of the so-called televangelists think that loud volume of voice will make up their lack of anointing? 
There is no slick act here with Jesus. No showboating. No publicity sought. He comes quietly in humility from his birth in a manger to his life as a carpenter to his baptism and then to his wilderness experience. And from there he begins to simply call men to follow him. And he comes in humility and in trust that as he does the Father's will, through him the Father's will is accomplished. And notice what Isaiah says, how this humility manifests itself. It says, a bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. Now near the riverbanks, where Isaiah's audience would have lived, and in the marshy areas, they would have been familiar with reeds growing up in those wet places. And when they would have heard this said from Isaiah's lips or heard read from the text, they would have had immediately an image of these reeds out there and they would have pictured in their mind one that was bent perhaps from an animal walking through and breaking it slightly as it made its way to get water or a human being going down to bathe in the river. And Isaiah says that when this Jesus, this servant, sees this broken Read, he will not break it the rest of the way off. Or a smoldering wick. Some of you will remember a number of years ago the slogan that went through the church, or at least much of the church, what would Jesus do? Well, this week I should have asked that question because in the chapel at our hospital where I work, there's a candle that is constantly burning. And I looked in and saw it and thought it had gone out, so I went in to tend to it, and when I got up close to it, I discovered there was, in fact, a problem with the wick. There was actually a little bit of light there, but it wasn't enough to be seen, and I didn't do what Jesus would do. I snuffed it out. But that's not what Jesus does with us. These images of of, of a wick and a reed broken and smoldering are about us, about our lives, about human lives that have been bruised and broken and smoldering. And Isaiah says this servant, when he comes, will not come to snuff out and to break off. He will come in a different way. A bruised reed he will not break. Thomas the apostle had invested all of his hopes and dreams and faith in Jesus as Messiah. And when Jesus hangs upon the cross and is crucified and dies that Friday afternoon, all of Thomas's hopes and dreams and anticipation died with him. And when Jesus is raised and appears to the apostles and Thomas is not there, he eventually is present with them and says, I will not believe until I see. He's a broken reed. When Jesus shows up, he shows him his hands and his side because a broken reed he will not break. Simon Peter denies Jesus three times and in the post-resurrection appearance of Jesus, he says to Simon Peter, feed my sheep. Why? Because a broken and bruised reed he will not break. 
There was a guy, was a patient in our ICU this past year. He was critically ill. He was sedated and intubated and everything was, the machines were doing the work and they were pumping all kinds of medicines into him. I said to his nurse one day when I was in the unit, is he going to make it out of here? And he said, I'm not sure. He's critically ill. His mother was a Christian. She wanted me to go in and pray for him. I did. Eventually the corner turned and he began to get better. He eventually became awake, continued to get better. And he was in our hospital not just because he was, well, he was ill, but he was ill because he had lived a lifestyle of engaging in illicit drugs, right? And it affects you negatively. And on one occasion, I'd gone in and we'd prayed together and he was seeking. I could tell he was seeking after God and we prayed together. And then another occasion, I happened to be outside of this little room that he was in. The door was held up and I could hear him in there. And I thought, oh he sounds like a crazy man in there, routing and kind of shouting. And I went in and he was saying all this religious stuff, but we talked and we prayed together again. And then eventually he was discharged and I lost track of him. And weeks later, I'm in the hallway, and this man is standing before me, and I did not recognize him. It was like that story in the gospel. He was clothed and in his right mind, right? Because Jesus will not break a bruised and crushed reed. He found God's healing grace in the servant who comes for us. Perhaps as you sit here this morning, you are perhaps feeling bruised, broken. Perhaps you think the light has gone out and maybe it's from things that have, are happening to you currently or maybe it's things from your past. Maybe it's bad choices you've made or maybe it's things that were spoken over you or done to you as a child or adolescent or an unhealthy spouse. Behold, I tell you, he has not come to break you. He has not come to snuff you out. He has come that you might find life in him. And he is sending his healing word to you if you will but open his word, open your heart to receive what he wants to speak over you. Perhaps you've been bruised in the past by the church. Some of you may have been in places where you were loved as long as you could deliver in some aspect of ministry or as long as you towed the line, as long as you could dot their I's or cross their T's. But as soon as you failed their standards, you got bruised and you found that they turned on you to crush you. But this is not the heart of Jesus. The psalmist says that he sent his word and healed them. And his word continues to come to us. And it's not a word of condemnation. It's a word of healing and a word of grace and a word of life. Listen to also what the psalmist says about this servant. That when he comes, he will bring forth justice to the nations. Remember his promise to Abraham. He says, in you and through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. So they're sitting there, perhaps hearing Isaiah or reading his text. We wonder, what did they hear when they heard that word justice, that he will bring justice to the nations? What, what would they have heard? Perhaps in their mind it would have been an echo from Deuteronomy chapter 10 where we read these words. For the Lord your God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords, the great 
the mighty and the awesome, who does not show partiality nor take a bribe. He executes justice for the orphan and the widow and shows his love for the stranger by giving him food and clothing. But perhaps it's these words from Isaiah in another passage. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from my sight, stop doing evil, learn to do good, seek justice, rebuke the oppressor, obtain justice for the orphan, plead for the widow's case. We must hear God's call to us today and ask ourselves, how does God want to use St. Andrew's Anglican Church in the aspects of justice? in this world in which we live. Now, last month I preached, and we talked about this issue, that social justice is not the opposite of the gospel, that they're flip sides of the same coin. And I know that makes some of us nervous when we talk about those aspects of things, as I talked about last month, but I want to say to you that you instinctively know this is true. And here's how I can tell you I know you know this. Remember this Sunday, and you may not remember this, but I remember this clearly. And I don't remember who she was, but she got up here and she announced to us that Wilson Elementary School, where so many of you have gone and served as a mentor and have done the fairs with and the backpacks with and all those things that you did for those children. When the woman stood up here and announced that the school district was closing Wilson Elementary School, you could feel the breath sucked out of this place for a moment. Why? Because you know this is right. Or like the time that Kimberly Cook got up here and announced that she was starting Live Thankfully on behalf of children, adolescent children in this city, you could hear it resonate with you if you sat here and listened. But it's always the gospel with these acts of justice. It's never the acts alone. It's the word and the work coupled together. Because folks, ultimately, ultimately, full and lasting justice will not come until Jesus comes again. No political party, no government can establish lasting justice in the earth. And nevertheless, you and I must give voice and witness to the gospel in all of these places that we can give it. It doesn't have to be big things or visible things like that. It could be quiet things as well. When apartheid was the rule in South Africa, the norm for the people was that if a black person and a white person were coming down the same sidewalk toward each other, the expectation was that the black man or the black woman had to step off into the gutter, regardless of how dirty it might have been, and wait for the white person to pass. And as the white person passed, they were to nod their head as a gesture of respect. One day, a black woman and her little boy came walking down a sidewalk and tumming toward them was a white man dressed in a black suit. And as they reached that point where, according to the custom, she should have stepped off in the sidewalk, off the sidewalk before she could, this white man stepped off into the gutter and he tipped his hat toward her as she passed as a gesture of respect. And as they got past, the little boy asked his mother, who was that man in that black suit? 
And she said to him, he's a man of God. He's an Anglican priest. And the little boy said, when I grow up, I want to be an Anglican priest and I want to be a man of God. And a week ago yesterday he was buried and his name is Desmond Tutu. And if you don't think that little act of justice didn't make a difference in his life and in the world, we must recognize that we are Jesus' light in this world. We are bearers of Jesus' grace in this world. And we must open ourselves to be instruments to be used in the way that he wants to use us. But it has to begin with that very first word that Isaiah says. Behold, see, look, perceive. Listen to what Jesus says of himself. Jesus says about himself and about his father, he says, For this is the will of my father, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Have you seen the Son? Have you beheld the Son? Have you believed on the Son? My wife and I and our daughter were in the kitchen one day, bebopping, doing things. I don't know, making something to eat probably. I don't know what we were doing in there. But my daughter has an older cousin. He's significantly older than her. And this sounds like a strange thing to say, but when he was in high school in his youth group in this little independent evangelical, well, a fundamentalist church is what he was in, their youth director said to the kids, he presented a challenge to the youth group, if anyone will memorize the whole book of Proverbs, I will give you $1,000. Well, he didn't know who he had in his youth group. So this young boy who's my wife's nephew took up the challenge and he memorized the whole book of Proverbs. And then my wife and I pointed out that today he never darkens the door of a church. And my daughter said, it's one thing to memorize, it's another thing to internalize. And you can sit through the liturgy Sunday after Sunday and say the creed and never internalize. And you may be feeling broken and bruised and battered, but I'm here to tell you that Jesus did not come to break you. He came to save you and to bring you life through faith in him. Have you beheld him? In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.